Bonnie, how about this young lady who had fertility treatments, got pregnant, now has metastatic disease? Yeah, so she, interestingly, premenopausal, T2N1, she only had one positive node, had a lumpectomy and radiation, ear appear positive, HER2 negative. She was treated with adjuvant therapy. I believe she had TC times four and then was placed on tamoxifen. She was premenopausal. And soon after the tamoxifen told me that she wanted to have a child and she asked me about, well, what would it be like, could I go off tamoxifen for a year so that I could get pregnant? And, you know, we talked about the historical standard of waiting five years. But when you're in your mid-30s, waiting five years may close a door for you. And she was anxious to try. And realizing that we don't know what we don't know, she went off the tamoxifen, did promptly become pregnant, and had fertility treatments. But she jumped on that pretty quickly. So she had fertility treatments, had two-year-old twins, when unfortunately she had some back pain and had biopsy-proven metastatic disease. Redid her staging workup. She had a few scalp lesions. She had an ovarian lesion. And she even had some mesenteric stuff. I don't know if it was just dirty mesentery or some thickened mesentery. She was placed on letrozole and had her ovaries removed and went into a quick remission. And she's been like that for at least a year. So before we explore the medical aspects, oncologic aspects of this, I'm curious what it was like when she was diagnosed with metastatic disease. Did she verbalize any regrets of having, you know, stopped the endocrine therapy? Interestingly, I don't recall her lamenting terribly about it. How about you? In fact, that's interesting you should say that because I remember there is always this great heaviness when you have to tell somebody that their cancer is back. But for a young woman who now has these two beautiful two-year-olds and she's coming in for her appointment and they're in the double stroller and I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, I was charged with protecting you and I possibly could have convinced her not to do it and didn't. And you know, we were talking about this earlier, Beth, that although it's probably not appropriate for us to beat ourselves up too much when we make the best decisions we can, if we don't beat ourselves up a little bit, you wonder if you're in the right business. But going into that room to tell her was just heartbreaking for me. What's it been like since then? Well, you know, a remission doesn't hurt. <laughs> and I think now, you know, her scalp lesions, which she picked up and showed me, watching them dissolve quickly and having her see that was quite helpful. And now I think she's really focused on caring for her children and taking one day at a time. She is not the most warm and fuzzy patient I have, so I've struggled a little bit to connect with her. And I think for me, that's difficult. That's sort of my shtick. And so when I'm missing that, it's a challenge to not be the person I want to be, but be the person they need me to be. So again, Beth, looking over Bonnie's shoulder, and again, before we get into some of the medical aspects, just the personal, but sometimes it's like you almost feel like you lose track of how profound it is to be a medical oncologist. I mean, you listen to the story you just described, the feelings you just described, and, you know, again, you looking over her shoulder, but knowing that tomorrow you're going to be in clinic, it's going to be you, Beth, dealing with these kinds of thoughts. I think I just saw a paper on burnout in oncology that just came out. I think it was a JCO, and it looked a little bit high to me. Yeah, it's very, it's very high. And we were actually just talking about that when we were driving here, because we also think that it's 
higher among physicians who treat breast cancer patients. They are, you know, number one, they're very verbal. They're very proactive. They pull at your emotional heartstrings because of small children or families, et cetera. And it's not just because we are women oncologists. They do the same thing to male oncologists. And at least at the Dana-Farber, I think people institutionally realize that those who treat breast cancer patients spend more time with their patients. They require more time with their patients. And so that kind of interaction is a little bit different than treating other types of malignancies, which seem to be a little cleaner. You separate the disease from the human a little bit more. Breast cancer is very difficult to separate. It is, you know, the breast is a sexual organ, and consequently, all of that psychology comes up in terms of, did I do something wrong, and is this really sexual? It's a family disease, so you have to bring in the husband and the children. It really is an all-encompassing disease, many manifestations. So how do we protect ourselves is what we were talking about. And some of us are able to sign out for a couple hours and turn our pages off. And just those few hours of saying, you can't get me, I'm okay, I'm safe, allows you to sort of clear your head. Bonnie was talking about her kids. She focuses on home life to get her away from all of that emotional turmoil of taking care of these patients so she can distance herself and make the right decisions. And I do my research. So I feel like, oh, you know, I'm being productive. I can help them, even though in the office, oftentimes I can't. And so we all have our ways of coping, but it is extremely difficult being a breast oncologist. And don't you think it's important, as you said, we all have our ways of coping, but what's really important is that you find a way. Exactly. Um, It can be running for you and it can be cooking for somebody else and it can be my children for me, but you need to have something. Absolutely. Absolutely. So maybe just to complete this, Beth, if you want to verbalize any thoughts about this case from an oncologic point of view, the fertility treatments, the pregnancy, the metastatic disease, the therapy, any sort of teaching points? So one is a reassurance to everyone that still the data, even as recent as 2014, show that having a pregnancy after the diagnosis of breast cancer does not increase the risk of recurrence. It is unclear whether using fertility medicine, exogenous hormones after the diagnosis of breast cancer may impact on that. That's a different story. Of course, it's not been studied. We really don't know. So that's important. The other thing is just to reassure all the oncologists whose patients go off of tamoxifen in order to become pregnant, you know, life is uncertain When one gets pregnant with or without cancer, one runs the risk of having an adverse outcome, of dying of something, car accident, you name it. And so we all take the chance when we have a child. Just because you know one enemy doesn't mean that you should stop life. And that's only a potential enemy. This was a woman who was being treated for cure. So you should believe that it was not supposed to come back when you enter the rest of her life. So I wouldn't hurt myself too much. She was educated. She made the decision. It's bad luck. It's back. I'm glad she's doing well. I'm glad there's a lot of endocrine therapy out there for her. I'm glad that she's young and healthy because she can take whatever therapy is going to be given her in the future. So I'm much more optimistic about people like that nowadays because of what we have to offer her in terms of new drugs and new therapies. And final question, which is, 
What might we be offering patients with ER-positive HER2-negative disease in the future? It kind of seems like we haven't seen any new endocrine agents, not too much exciting, just purely endocrine. What about novel agents, and particularly combining novel? Of course, we saw Everlimus, but there are others out there, the CDK inhibitor. What are your thoughts about where we might be in a couple of years, Beth, in terms of systemic therapy, VR-positive disease? So I think one focus is really on the androgen receptor. So hopefully you'll be seeing some results from a selective androgen receptor modulator, a GTX drug, GTX240. So I think that a lot more work is going to be focusing on the androgen receptor in the future. You know, in terms of the CDK inhibitors, they're a challenge just because of what they do biologically in terms of hematologic toxicity, et cetera. We don't quite understand them. And we also don't understand which CDK inhibitor is important. So there's a lot of work being done on that front. The other are the HSP90 inhibitors. Ganatespid is one we're working with, with fulvestrant. So some of the chaperones. So I think that what we will see is a lot more integration of targeted therapies with endocrine therapy or traditional endocrine therapy, but then also looking at these other hormonal pathways like the androgen receptors. So my hope is that, and what I've at least seen in clinical trials is that we're really moving, we really are moving towards more research for the hormone receptor positive population. Just to close out here, I was wondering, Bonnie, what it was like to make rounds today with Beth. It was amazing. It was a wonderful experience. I think not unlike when I attend ASCO or San Antonio, much of what you hear you've already heard about now that we have the wonderful internet, but it was reassuring that you'd have a world expert looking over your shoulder and saying to you, you're not doing a bad job. Yes, I would have done the same thing. Because so many of the things a community oncologist agonizes over are things that are truly not answerable. And you're wondering, what should I do? What should you do? And when you have someone like Beth saying, you know what? We don't really know the right answer. That's comforting. It was also surprising to see someone looking at you from the outside because, as in life, we don't often see ourselves the way others see us. And we talked about a few cases where I do things that I didn't know I did as often as I did. And she pointed out that, you know, a couple patients now we've seen this. And in my practice, I do that sometimes, but here's another way to look at it. What was your impression, Bonnie, about the patient's response to this experience? Oh, I didn't have anybody that turned down my offer. In fact, I had more patients than I had spots. And in fact, I secretly put one extra in because I, and we worked right through lunch (laughs) and Beth was kind enough to do one extra. I think a combination of some of my patients, I think were reassured that, you know what, what we're doing is the right thing. I think that for some of our patients, it was helpful because if and when their time comes that a change has to be made, they heard you say, you know what? We have this and this available now, and in our laboratory, we have this, this, and this that are about to be here, so there is going to be plenty of options. And I think for me as a breast oncologist, there are more options now mm-hmm. than I have opportunities to use them, and it's becoming more and more, which one am I going to get the biggest bang with the least pay? Mm-hmm. 